Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is your old pal, Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Your new pal? I'm nobody's pal. No, not that guy. Nobody's pal. <laughs> nobody's pal. <laughs> I guess I'm my old dog's pal. Old dog. Yeah, hey, old dog's doing... He's had a good month. He's had... It's been more than a month since he's had a seizure, which is a good sign. Yeah. Got him on, on some new meds. Yeah. But he's being, he's being contrarian today, which to me, he's a terrier. Yeah. So if he's contrarian, he's feeling well. <laughs> and, and my example is I've I as he's gotten older and he's struggling to maintain his warmth and so forth, I've set up little beds for him in the various places that I know he likes to hang out. And one is under my desk. You know, we do the same thing with our great aunt. Very nice. So, yeah. Keep it keep a bed up for her yeah, under your yeah. desk. I like that a lot. Yep. Yep. So here's how he's being contrarian today. He's sleeping beside the bed, resting his head on the bed rather than in the bed. Oh. And so then he got up and 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 went to talk to Stacy about something because he does that, and I moved the bed to set it m- more better in the you know more effectively in the corner, and he came back and slept on the other side of the bed, but not hmm. in the bed. Hmm. Hmm. But yeah, he's um he's an old old he's he turned sixteen. He is an old dog, and I did not expect him to be an old dog. Like my expectation of telling the story of Zach was supposed to end with, and then he bit down on that bear and I never saw him again, <laughs> right? Like the way that dog lived his life, pursuing vermin relentlessly, the bear was going to take him one day. I don't know how he got, now he's too old, deaf and blind to find bears. Well, there's one thing I know about Zach. He's been well fed. Oh, he, yeah. Well, and that makes all the difference with pets. He's fit as a fiddle, truly. Like the the, the vet is still the vet keeps telling me he's going to live forever, and I'm like, listen, like this is not likely. But a couple of herring a day, man, keeps the keeps the keeps the dog going. I tell people, whatever you do, do not feed your pets just dry food, dry pet food. That it's just deadly. It depends on the dog, uh, you know. Generally speaking, pet food is as well controlled as human food in the sense that yeah. the FDA sets regulations like it's nutritionally balanced. But cheap food is cheap food. I Even uh, if you uh, mix it with canned food, like I'm, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but I will anyway. Growing up, we had border collies and uh, we had a couple of litters. And so my family had a couple and we gave our our neighbors a couple. They fed theirs dry food only. And we would always mix like, you know, canned food and dry food and throw an egg in there once in a while. And I mean, literally, that was the only difference. And ours yeah. outlived the neighbors by a number of years, probably twice as long. I did. And Zach went on a raw diet because it, it's the only thing that seemed to work for him. And uh, and we found a way to feed him raw mackerel every day that was relatively efficient. That's good. Which And it, plus great you know, great party trick too. It's like, hey, here's two raw fish. Watch the dog eat the fish. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Arr, arr, arr. <laughs> yeah, down off he would chop, 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 chop. There he's gone. It's like, did he just eat the whole fish? All right, enough small talk. Let's get to better know a framework. All right, man. What do you got? Well, I've been on this um, kick uh, looking at the cognitive services lately. And, uh, uh, wait, 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 wait. Are you doing Better Know Framework about frameworks? I'm, That's weird. That, it's funny that you should say that. <laughs> it was even, yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, I heard a great joke on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which was that Jeff Bezos is stepping down as executive chair of Amazon, which is ironic because that's the last thing I ordered from Amazon was an executive chair. 
<laughs> anyway, yes, this is uh, another great um, cognitive service from Azure Cognitive Services, and it's called Form Recognizer. Hmm. So this is, and these guys just blow me away. Like, it seems like every time I turn my head, there's a new one. And this form recognizer, and I don't know how long it's been. Maybe Dan can tell us, but I don't know how long it's been up there, but I just discovered it. It's a cognitive service that uses machine learning technology to identify and extract key value pairs and table data from form documents. Right? It then outputs, it's a, it's the ultimate screen scraper. So you take a picture of a document and feed it into this thing and it will spit out the value pairs. I'm not so sure about pictures, probably, but uh, definitely PDFs. Wow. Uh, and then output structured data that includes the relationships in the original file. Unsupervised learning allows the model to understand the layout and field data without manual data labeling or intensive coding. You can also do supervised learning with manually labeled data. Right. And models trained with labeled data can perform better and work with more complicated documents. So it's just another example of holy crap. Yeah, I've got 10,000 te PDFs of for of the same form filled in over and over again, and I yeah. can feed it to this thing, and it should be able to pull all the data out for me. Yeah, that's right. That's cool. It's really, really cool. And then, you know, it's just another thing that I don't have to worry about when I want to do some AI, uh, I don't have to get a degree. I don't have to be Seth Juarez to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Although I can imagine Seth Juarez is having a field day with this stuff right now. <laughs> I've done a couple of shows on the run as side with Seth recently. Mm. Uh, late, late in the fall, yeah, last year, I think it was the last one. And yeah, just he's in his, his glory, right? Yeah. I mean, he was an awesome Channel 9 guy, but yeah. he's really helping to teach what machine learning can do for you. Very practical, like how to get stuff done, you know, enough that I stuck him on an IT show to talk about it. Like, as, as a matter of fact, I was you. talking to him just a couple of days ago. We just decided, Hey, let's call Seth and check in with him. So yeah, that was the mm -hmm. first I learned that he's off channel nine. But, um, uh, by the way, I got some clarification here. The format must be JPEG, PNG, PDF, text or scanned or TIFF. Nice. There you go. Text so you can bid. take pictures of forms. You can. You can feed it PDFs. That's amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Awesome. So there you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Hey, I know we're not necessarily going to go flying down the blazer path today, even though we're talking to Dan. I did want to bring up a comment from a blazer-related show, which is the one we did back in June of 2020 with show 1690, um, where we talked to Egil Hansen about B-Unit. And testing Blazor apps. Yeah. And this comment comes from, and I, I, I may trash your, your your pronunciation here, sir, so I apologize. This comes from Thij Brabble, who says, I haven't completely finished listening to this podcast, only 10 minutes left, but really amazed to hear that such a testing library gets support from the community. If we end up using BUnit, I, I wouldn't hesitate to contribute if I have something to contribute. One thing that got me tinkering is the part where he mentioned that Microsoft didn't have something for this and that they're pushing people towards BUnit. And then I saw this vi this NDC video with Steve where he explicitly talks about testing as well and that they've added support for a testing library for Blazor components. Uh, is is trying to fill the same gap or is it going about it from a different angle? And uh, we, they, so they're all actually related. But uh, yeah, I, I thought it was really, that was a cool show. And I went and checked in on... Uh, on Eggle's project and 
got multiple contributors, a hundred, couple hundred people have said they're using it. Like it's uh, updates just this past week. It's thriving. Being in it seems to be doing its thing. Exciting stuff. So, Thij, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Code Buy, write a comment on the website at donairocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Don't worry. We will extract the name value pairs appropriately. <laughs> there you go. And that All brings right. us to our guest. Daniel Roth is uh, the guy that we always go to at Microsoft to talk about Blazor and ASP.NET Core. And uh, how the heck are you, man? Hi, I'm doing great. Hi, Rich. Hi, Carl. It's great to be here again. Yeah, yeah. Um, am, I, am I out of sorts there? Is B-Unit still something on the Blazor team's uh, scopes? You guys care about it? is what you should use. Like we we had actually started a testing library. Steve right. had done some initial prototyping as Steve does and put together some ideas. Uh Ejil was already working on I think on on testing library at that point as well and that, and working with the community on it. And he looked at what Steve did and took a lot of the ideas that Steve was playing around with and we looked at what he was doing and we were like that looks great. Let's just tell people to use B unit. So actually our our recommendation for Component unit testing, component testing is to use BUnit. Uh, I think it's a great example of the community sort of stepping in and filling an important gap and how we can work better together. Yeah, and it's it's always a balance. And are, are you would you get to a place where uh, Microsoft folks would contribute to that project as well? I, I poked around, I didn't see anything that was obvious. We don't, I don't know that we've done any specific like pull requests to the BUnit mm. uh, um, repository, but we regularly consult with him. Like he will ping us on design questions and such on like, how should BUnit be doing this or that or the other? And we'll like chat with him about uh, what we think would be the recommended approach. Right. So we didn't contribute that way, like just uh, reviewing and, and providing, you know, framework level X expertise. That's awesome. And, it, you know, one of the story arcs in 2020 was this conversation about Microsoft being in the open source community and that dynamic between what does the community build? What does Microsoft build? And how do those points of intersection work? Like it's, it's got to be challenging because you, I mean, you are at your job and you happen to contribute to open source as opposed to, I think Eggle has a, another job and then does this on the side. The dynamics very different. Mm. Oh yeah, and then and I think the .NET ecosystem has a you know a tricky history here. Like there's we we built the .NET framework back in the day, and there's mm -hmm. I think there's kind of this expectation that still lingers that uh, Microsoft will will provide the, the the complete solution, and that leads some some even users of .NET to have a little I would say some mistrust. Like like they they worry about adopting third party yeah. open source libraries. And I think a big part of our job on the .NET team is to, you know, is to try and, and, and address that, like try to establish a greater trust and more confidence in the open source ecosystem. Because honestly, we can't build it all. Like no. we need the, the open source community. And there are a lot of people out there that are just as smart and, and often smarter than us. And they build fantastic things and they, their, their technology absolutely should be used too. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's absolutely an interesting balance. And then, you know, it also depends on the community member, right? Like some folks in the .NET community only want to take stuff from Microsoft uh, and are very leery of open source projects. And other folks would rather use the open source stuff. Like it's, they're no, we're not all the same. 
I think a big part of what we do here is uh, is actually through the .NET Foundation. Like the .NET yeah. Foundation was specifically set up to try and encourage .NET open source, help .NET open source projects be successful. You know, help give them resources because you're right. A lot of these projects are just like often one person that is doing a work of love uh, for the community, and that that can be very hard. And so, yeah. providing ways for them to get support either through the foundation or encouraging people that are using open source technologies to give back as as much as possible. Uh, I think that's all a good thing. I, I know for Blazor in particular, we rely heavily on that. Um, we you know we can't build every single web UI component that people need. There, we, we very much think of Blazor as a platform framework, and we rely heavily on the ecosystem to to build out from there. And uh, I've got to say, they, they've done a great job, whether it's the component vendors or open source projects. Uh, Blazor's success has been uh, heavily based on the uh, contributions from the open source community. You know, while you guys were talking, I was trying to think of another tool that we found, Richard, and I don't know if we talked about it on the show or not, but it was sort of like this all automated testing tool that you just introduce to your projects and it creates unit tests for all of your your code in blazer oh devmate that's what it is all right so devmate.software i just found it it's funny yeah so the, I, I haven't used it but here's the the leading headline generate 10 test cases in three minutes with minimal effort guaranteed DevMate learns from your mistakes with AI. So it's quickly and automatically create test cases for complete functional code coverage, generate fully automated test code from test cases at the touch of a button. So that's something interesting to think about anyway. Yeah, I'd have to go take a look. We, I mean, we try to help draw attention to projects in the ecosystem like that that mm. can add value. So, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. It does seem to me that the commercial ecosystem has rallied around Blazor. Oh yeah. oh yeah, like I the the number of uh you know commercial component vendors that have now have Blazor offerings uh mm -hmm. it just continues to grow. I think all the major players are there now. So yeah. Telerik, Dev Express, SyncFusion, Infogistics, Grape City, uh Radzen, JQ Widgets is a recent addition to that list. They all have uh Blazor component libraries now that you can leverage with grids and tab views and all those things. Um, but there's, you know, it's worth calling out though. There's also a bunch of open source libraries too that are yeah. just as good, like Blazor, Blazor Eyes, Ant Design, Matt Blazor, Blazor Strap. Um, they all have uh, fantastic component libraries as well that are that are free and just maintained by the the community, mm. um, which is great because, uh, like I said, we we have a team that's very focused on the platform. Um, we often get asked, like, are you going to produce like, you know, a, a, a component library for Blazor that's from Microsoft? And right. we, we have no plans to do that. We, we try to provide just the absolute required pieces that everyone needs. And we lean on the ecosystem to really build out that component ecosystem. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and, and as a, as a you, component, I, I came from the world of component development in this business. And I remember even back in the days of quick basic, we were, you know, worried that Microsoft would, you know, start eating into our bread and butter, but you never did. I mean, the, and that, I always liked that about Microsoft, if, uh, the developer uh, community that you, you kept, you gave us, a, a, you know, the free space to innovate. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. Uh, you, know, and you need to have, be able to have that confidence that if you're going to contribute back, that your project isn't going to just like become defunct at, at some future point because Microsoft decides to move into that space. I mean, right. I don't want to, I don't want to overstate that because, you know, sometimes that does happen where True. Microsoft, we decide we do need that, that there is a need actually to provide something as part of the platform. 
as a and standard those can be or something controversial <laughs> but uh, we do our best to work with the community when we try to make those decisions yeah well i, I hate to make the comparisons to silverlight However, the ecosystem rally feels to me like Silverlight. And there was a time when Microsoft then made a set of controls for Silverlight, and, and was, it was, which was a disruptive moment. Like It's like, well, why? But, you know, it, it is an interesting dynamic to say the customer wants these things. Like, how, what's the best way to provide them? Because I would think the ecosystem solution is a superior solution where you have multiple vendors competing and optimizing in that space. Yeah, it's it, it's hard. Like I with uh like there are there are customer needs that do get expressed to us that we do have to think about. Like like I often talk to particularly internal customers at Microsoft yeah. that are specifically looking for uh you know a, a blessed implementation of Fluent UI for for Blazor, and they they come to us and say, "What's the story there?" And we're like, "Well, we don't plan to build a component library for Blazor. So if someone internally wants to build that and share that, that would be great. Or right. you can look at these other uh, community projects. Or, or pick one, yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's that tension there where they, you know, we do get asked regularly. I tend to think that if you have provided all the building blocks for somebody to create the component themselves, no matter how hard it might be, then that's that's good. That's enough, right? If, uh, but if, you know, stuff like, you know, data grids and calendars and schedulers and, uh, you know, list boxes that do more than just your basic select, um, those kinds of things, I don't want to have to write. And that's why I go to a third party, Yeah, you know, but, but if I could, if, uh, if I wanted to spend the time and effort to build a component, I, I could do that if I had more time than money. Right up until it's an internal Microsoft team. Like, that's an interesting question. Because if an internal Microsoft team turns around and licenses a component vendor suite for the implementation they're going to do, that's a tacit endorsement by Microsoft of that vendor's product. Like, that's going to shake up the ecosystem by itself. Yeah, it has its own own issues there. Yeah. Yep. Yep, it is a... It's an interesting question what we do there. And then, and then also, I mean, there are real issues with third-party dependencies. I mean, the whole mm. security um, environment we live in now with like yeah. SolarWinds and such, there's a lot yeah, of Yeah, you cool- look at SolarWinds and say, w- could you take a dependency? Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it is interesting and it is, it is tricky. Like I'm, I think what we hope is that, well, maybe there will be some folks internally that do decide that they need some of their own components. And if they do that, that they would share that with the world and be like, well, sure. we'll put some components for our products and we think these would be good for other people's products too. So feel free to, to use them. Yeah. But you're not going to do that. We don't plan to do that on the Blazor team. We're, yeah. We need to focus on making sure the, the framework itself is as good as possible so that you can it's build also, components. It's also very fair to say we don't plan to do that because the right VP shows up and says, you will be doing this. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm. things change. Yeah, and there, there is always that. <laughs> but we're here to talk about .NET 6, Dan. What? Oh, man. Yes. What? <laughs> .NET 6 is is in full swing now. Uh, we just shipped .NET 5, right? .NET yeah. 5 went out in November, and there was a bunch of awesome Blazor stuff that came out in .NET 5. So if you haven't been using .NET 5 yet, you, you should. Uh, particularly if you're a Blazor WebAssembly user, we did a lot of work in Blazor WebAssembly and .NET 5 to improve performance. Oh, yeah. Uh, like rendering and JSON handling is two to four times faster on the WebAssembly runtime in .NET 5. 
We added a bunch of performance-related features like component virtualization and uh, laser WebAssembly pre-rendering so that you can like uh, pre-render the, the UI on the server so it at least feels like it's, 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 you're getting pixels on the screen as fast as possible. Uh, lazy loading support so you can like chop up your app into pieces and not have to download it all at once. You can download just like the main part and then if they browse to some other part of your app, you can lazy load that, that section later. Um, but we are, are now moving on to, to .NET 6, and uh, you should expect to see previews start coming out here pretty soon. I think there's one um, scheduled later this month, and they should come out about uh, uh, monthly from now until November. Um, this will be a, an LTS release. I don't know if, if how much people have internalized the .NET schedule going forward, but basically there's a new major release of .NET coming out every November from now until the end of time. That's right. great. So, .NET 1073. As many, as many .NET Rocks episodes. Like, we're just constantly chasing <laughs> that, that number from here on out. Uh, every, every even number will be an LTS release. So, this .NET 6 release will be an LTS release and the first LTS release of, of Blazor WebAssembly. An LTS meaning three years of, of guaranteed Long -term support. Long-term support. Long-term support release. Exactly. But, um, but then recognizing that long-term support today means three years. Yes. Like yeah. we, I briefly mentioned Silverlight earlier in the show. The last version of Silverlight, which shipped in 2011, goes out of support this year. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, uh, we have to uh, align with the times. You know, yeah. three years of support is about the, the norm these days for, for LTS support. Yeah, it does feel weird given like back in the day, like Windows support life cycles. We're a decade or long, plus. At least a decade. I yeah. think the U.S. Navy is still paying you to support Windows XP. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Good gig but if you can honestly, get it. The hope there, though, is that the number of people that really need to be on the LTS support releases, we hope actually yeah. isn't that big. That we, mm -hmm. we're trying really hard. Now, I know in the early days of .NET Core, there was a lot of churn. And there were breaking changes and things were shuffling around as we figured out how to do cross-platform and this whole new world of .NET Core. Going forward, like we've already, we're pretty much at the point where we have, I think, well over a million developers on, on, on .NET Core. Uh, as those numbers get big, breaking changes and, and moving people's cheese gets way more expensive. Like just 1% yeah. of, you know, a breaking change that affects 1% of users is a huge number of developers. Yeah. So that slows way down, which means your ability to adopt new releases, even current releases, should that capacity should go way up. So we hope that actually most people can can stay on the latest and adopt releases as they as they come out fairly cheaply with very little churn needed in your application. I, mean, I think the other point that's happened is we've matured as an industry enough to recognize that when you don't update software, that software is a liability. Yeah, there's, there's that issue as well. Yeah, well, I, I've got my tinfoil hat on, man. Like I'm dealing with this over on the run-ass sides with IT people where it's like, what's getting exploited is old software. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we're all battling right now. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like older bits won't get uh, get servicing patches. Like we will fix security releases in our in our down level releases. Like those oh, for sure. That that will still continue to happen. But, but that, that that doesn't matter if I can't build the software anymore. Uh, right. Like that's what we're dealing with. It's like, hey, yeah, this has been fixed. Recompile your app with this new DLL, and it's like, when you say recompile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the issue is that this software has become inert and is now unsafe. 
Yeah, and you just miss out. Like it rots, right? Like you just you just miss out on stuff. Like things. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're at risk, right? And I see, you know, and again, I'm wearing the IT hat, where it's like now I have to run this in a lockdown VM, where I have to assign individual addresses that are able to access it because I I cannot cope with the ransomware risk that it provides. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could actually update it, like get it buildable or replace it. Like this, all this old software now is looking more and more like a liability. So please upgrade. Yes. Yes, do that. <laughs> but I, and I make the point to say like the culture you're cultivating now is the culture that will keep software safe and reliable. And I think, and there's, there's responsibility on us to make that possible, right? Like we yeah. all know of customers that have had a lot of pain trying to move from one version to the next. And we, we need to get better at making that as easy yeah. as possible. I, like I look at other ecosystems, like, um, like particularly like what the Angular team does with their mm-hmm. frameworks. You know, they have built-in tooling from version to version upgrades. They provide tons of documentation about how to move from one version to the next. Um, I don't have, I, will, I can't say I have a ton of direct experience updating Angular apps. Well, you go talk to someone who went from 1.1 to 2, man. Like you'll, you'll, there, the anger is there. Oh, yeah. And I, <laughs> yes, I know that was a big jump. But they, I think, have matured in a lot of ways yeah. for version to version upgrades that I would love to see .NET do as well. Like imagine there was a .NET upgrade thing that you could point at your app and would handle a lot of the mechanics of moving to the next version. Imagine there were analyzers that could look at your code and um, sort of automate a lot of the breaking change notifications that we make to help right. you, you know, adjust your code as needed to the new version. That would, I think that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Can I interrupt this love fest to ask what's coming in preview two, March 11th? In preview two of .NET 6, um, there are, uh, so let's see, in on the Blazor side specifically, there's really three main areas of investment that we're working on for .NET 6. Um, the big ones are uh, hot reload support. Yes. So that, that, yeah, that's the ability to get changes into your app during development uh, without having to restart the application, get them in as quickly as possible, basically hot patch your running app that you're working on so you can see your UI changes and logic changes in the in your application as quickly as possible. That one's actually not Blazor specific. Um, we, we will, we're doing the work for Blazor as well, but it's going to cover all of the UI workloads, ASP.NET Core. And so if you're an MVC developer, Razor Pages, cool. um, desktop, mobile development, if you're doing XAML, Hot Reload is a broad theme for, for .NET 6 that we'll be working on. You, I can't say that there will be bits in Preview 2 okay. specifically, but soon, soon. You can do that sort of in Blazor now, right? I mean, I've seen the, the sort of the, the, the kludges for it. I guess you start without debugging and then you have to do something else. And then, you know, it takes less time to update in the browser. But what, if, what if, what's the difference between what you're, what you've got now and what you can do? Uh, what you right. want to do. Whittling away at the dev experience for a while. So like what you get today is you can control FI, like don't run in the debugger, just, just start the app uh, in Visual Studio or do a .NET watch run from the command line. Right. And what that does is it will set up a file watcher to look for code changes in your project. And if you make a change, it will automatically detect that, uh, shut down the app that's running, rebuild it really fast and get it up and running again as quick as possible. And then in .NET 5, actually, it will even auto-refresh the browser so that you see the changes uh, fairly seamlessly. And it takes, you know, depending on the size of your app, that can, that can take a couple seconds to however long your particular build process takes. So we call that 
auto restart yeah and then auto uh refresh of the the browser that's what you get today so it's like a trade-off if you if you're done debugging but now you just want to fix up some cosmetic things like some css or some you know that kind of thing right yeah it's a it's a way to make changes really quick while you're not in the debugger yeah. um, and basically start the app running once and then move to your text editor and just have the browser and the text editor side by side yeah. and see changes as you're making them. That's cool. But restarting that app is expensive. Like there's, there's a cost there right. to do that with hot reload. What we're going to do is we will, there's already capabilities in the .NET runtimes to sort of take a, a build diff, like the compiler Roslyn can figure out, well, given that you've now changed something, I can figure out just the piece of this DLL or of the IL that actually needs to change. And it can hand that off to the runtime and say, please apply this change to the running app for me. The, the most common case where that surfaces today is the edit and continue features in, in Visual Studio. Uh, we're going to take that capability and now make it a seamless part of your developer experience. As you make changes, instead of tearing down the whole app, We'll ask Roslyn for that diff. We'll hand it off to the runtime and say, please apply this. And it'll just get applied seamlessly to the existing running app while you're doing, uh, doing development. Right. Yeah. And guys, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. This episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by EveryPlate, America's best value meal kit delivery service. Not only is the food fresh and amazing, but each meal costs about as much as a cup of coffee. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes, definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store and starting a meal from scratch. Every plate gives you easy-to-follow recipe cards and pre-portioned ingredients so you can spend less time prepping and cooking and more time enjoying good food with family or loved ones. I wanted to see if every plate was as good as it was cost-effective, and after subscribing and cooking a few awesome meals, I'm convinced that you can get the same deliciousness at a much lower price. So experience fuller plates and a fatter wallet. Try every plate for just $1.99 per meal plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code.net199. That's right. Get started with every plate for just $1.99 per meal plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes. That's a $100 value. Go to everyplate.com now and enter code.net199. That's D-O-T-N-E-T. One ninety nine, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. <laughs> See, I've delivered that straight. Like, just nailed it. <laughs> Wait, switch that. Reverse it. Turn it around. What's that Willy Wonka? He's like, like, scratch that. that. Reverse it. <laughs> yeah, not that one. And that's Dan Roth. That's our friend Dan Roth, and he's been the Blazor guy for forever. But and we're definitely talking .NET six because, of course, Blazor's got a big role in .NET six. That's right. But, yeah, working on a bunch of stuff in Blazor for .NET six. Yay! Isn't the scary thing Maui? Like, isn't that the thing for .NET six? Is Maui? Maui is coming in .NET six. I don't think it's scary. I am pumped. Like, finally, a cross-platform unified UI story for .NET that'll work on yeah. mobile and desktop. That's what Maui is, and I, I'm I am super excited. We, I've been waiting to have that for a while, and it's coming. It's coming. Well, in I mean, that was the original promise of XAML going back to the aughts. The aughts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we ought to have yeah. a unified UI story. <laughs> yeah. So we, that's, that'll, that, it's basically, it's like the, uh, an evolution of Xamarin. So if you're familiar with Xamarin forms, 
Mm-hmm. Maui is is leveraging a lot of that technology, but it's expanding now to uh, include not just mobile scenarios, but cross-platform desktop scenarios. So Mac OS, Windows will be first-class citizens in that world. You're building native cross-platform UI, you have full access to the native capabilities of the device. And it's on top of Maui that we're actually planning to build a hybrid app story with Blazor in .NET 6. We call them Blazor hmm. Hybrid Desktop Apps. Tell me more. Tell me more. Inside your, inside your Maui app, uh, you can host your Blazor components in process. So they're running on the machine. Like They have full native access to the capabilities of the device. If you need to touch the file system or whatever, you can do that from your component code. But then you pair them with an embedded WebView control, like WebView 2 on Windows or whatever the native uh, um, WebView is on, on Mac. And then now you can render your components to that WebView and have WebUI embedded in your cross-platform Maui app. So a hybrid style model that enables you to share your web UI components from your web applications in your desktop applications and reuse your web skills. Like if you're a web developer coming to Maui development, maybe XAML is not the most familiar thing in the world to you, but guess what? If you want, you could use Blazor to to build your your user interface and get all the advantages of building a fully native app. And would you use the Blazor markup and the Blazor component model, you know, the HTML markup and all that stuff like we're doing now? Or do we have to use the new Maui XAML? Same markup. You use Razor files in your Maui app. You can even leverage the same uh, Blazor component libraries that you've already built. You could just reference them and um, reuse them in your Maui application because you are still you're still rendering to a browser in this model. Mm-hmm. It's still rendering HTML and CSS. You're basically leveraging the browser as a cross-platform UI stack and taking advantage of the consistency with the web. So you can have web UI that's sitting in your in your website, and you can have exactly those same UI components now. Uh, sitting in your Blazor hybrid desktop application. And from your nice. Blazor application, can you access the device capabilities? Yes. Like those, so those components, they won't run on WebAssembly. They're not going to actually run directly in the browser. They will sit in the .NET process. So they're running on like CoreCLR. Uh, on Windows, and they get the full perf benefits of the jitted runtime. They can call any of the .NET platform APIs to to access whatever they want. But they then have a little uh, interop channel with the browser, so they can push the UI updates into the browser, like the DOM diffs, and receive the UI events from the browser, basically all locally on your machine. I, I think of it very much like Blazor Server. Like Blazor Server does a very similar thing. Your components are running. And a different on a on a on a .NET process on your server, CoreCLR, but they have a channel of communication to the browser. In that case, it's a WebSocket, and it could be across the internet, and it's handling UI events from the browser and pushing DOM diffs into the browser for UI updates. A Blazor hybrid desktop app is basically doing the same thing. It's just that that channel that that interrupt channel is instead of being stretched over the internet. It's just like, you know, cross-process locally on, on the box. Okay. Um, so that's how it functionally is, is, is happening. So here's the million-dollar question. Can we use Maui and Blazor hybrid apps to create mobile applications? So, yes, we do expect that you will be able to do that. The same Blazor WebView control that we are a Maui control that we're building for desktop apps, uh, we expect it will be functional in mobile apps as well. For .NET 6, we are primarily focused on desktop scenarios. Right. Um, just scope the amount of work that we have to do in the single release. 
You will be able to use the same control in uh, mobile apps, but I would expect the story there to be a little bit less complete. Like there'll probably be some more rough edges around um, mobile concerns that we haven't quite thought through yet completely. But will you be able to do it? Yes, we expect you'll be able to, to do functionally do uh, a similar thing in a mobile app. That's really cool. I mean, because uh, all those people who are learning Blazor are thinking, you know, this is the 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 greatest UI uh, framework that I've ever used. You know, now want to leverage that for mobile applications and go beyond sort of the PWA to a native or at least hybrid mobile app. That uh, that's a very interesting thing. Um, I got another question here. Web Window, which is Steve uh, Steve Sanderson's baby. He, uh, you know, put out that great blog post about web window making cross platform, um, applications. Is, is, did that become Maui? Was that, did it contri- did, was that contributed to Maui or, you know? Yeah. So web window is a very, um, thin approach to what we're doing in Maui where it was, the idea was, well, what if you could do something like Electron? And a lot, and a lot of what we're doing in Blazor de- Hybrid Desktop is very similar to Electron, but right. with .NET instead of JavaScript. And a lot what less. What if you could do something like that, but instead of uh, encapsulating the full Chromium shell inside the application, what if you just use the native um, web, web view control that's part of the platform already mm. and get a bunch of download size savings there? Yeah. And what if you didn't include Node? Like, we don't need Node if we're going to use .NET, so we can kick the node out and put a .NET Core process in, in there instead and just see what that looks like. And what he found was you could get much smaller download sizes, particularly if you leveraged like uh, framework-dependent deployments where .NET has really already been installed on the machine, then the app like shrinks way down. Right. And you wow. can also reduce um, memory overhead of the, of the applications. So we're taking a lot of those learnings into MAUI the we're not specifically carrying web window itself forward because web window leaves a bunch of questions unanswered like okay i I can now render to uh, a web view control on desktop cross-platform but what what do i do if i now need to access cross-platform platform capabilities where's the library for you know getting my geolocation or or doing whatever it is that devices can do. Mm. MAUI gives you that story that that those apis are going to be provided as part of MAUI. Um, what if you want to add some native UI to your application? Like, even though Blazor hybrid apps we expect will be primarily uh, web UI based, there'll still be cases where, like, let's say you want a, a native menu or you need some native file picker control. Like, you have you need just a little bit of native UI in the application so it has the right feel. Right. Um, web window didn't answer those questions in any um, broad way. Maui does. Like, you can leverage Maui's infrastructure for um, putting in some native UI with your Blazor hybrid desktop app. I got to think this is where the component vendor ecosystem jumps in again, right? The same way they got excited about Blazor, they got to be stoked about this because we are going to start having, I want that native access to Windows or I want that native access to Mac and, and with appropriate looking controls. Yeah, so they, they their existing Blazor UI component libraries, they can already n- now leverage in this yeah. Blazor hybrid world. And then they can also start to light up functionality in those components. Like they can say like, well, if this component happens to be running like in a Maui app on a, on a Windows machine, well, then I can do this additional thing that, that Windows can do. Or if I'm running a Mac, I can do this additional thing that Mac can do to light yeah. up additional platforms. Well, and, and you're also out of the the browser sandbox, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
not just platform specific stuff, but just yeah. no longer contained by the browser security model. That's right. So is, is Maui uh, syntax, the XAML syntax, more like XAML XAML, like WPF XAML, or more like Xamarin Forms XAML? And it's more like Xamarin Forms XAML. It's, 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 it, it, Maui, you can think of it really as the evolution of Xamarin Forms. Okay. So the XAML you write there is Xamarin Forms model. And it's, you know, it's a XAML model. It's designed to be cross platform. Okay. Like it's designed to, to be functional on iOS and Android. And then now with Maui, uh, Mac OS and, and Windows and in the future, I think Linux is also on the roadmap. Um, yeah. So it's, it's more the Xamarin Forms XAML. Syntax. So I know Billy Hollis is listening right now and he's saying, yeah, yeah, but. What happens to all my WPF applications? Am I going to have to I write know. them in Maui now? What the hell is going on over there? <laughs> <laughs> so your your WPF apps they are they run on .NET six, so you can run them with with the the full benefits of the .NET six platform, mm. but they will continue to be Windows only. Like WPF is a Windows specific platform, and there is no plans to and it's therefore more powerful, right, on Windows to do a WPF application than to build a Maui app. Am I right about that? Yeah, I, I, the you 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 get the all the perf benefits, yeah, all the graphics. functional improvements that we've done in .NET six in your WPF app by uh, by running on um, on .NET six, and then of course by being Windows specific, uh, WPF can take advantage of the Windows platform in a very unique way yeah. that you kind of have to abstract over with a, a Maui model. The same is true for WinForms, right? I mean, even sure. in .NET Core 3.1, we got a WinForms version that was in the Windows SDK. Yeah. Although we still, this the high DPI thing is still a battle, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, I thought they've been doing a bunch of work. I mean, so there, there's investments happening in WinForms in .NET 6. And, you know, WinForms is amazing. Like, it's it's one of the fast, like, Blazor grows really fast in, uh, in .NET. Like, there's a lot of people jumping on the Blazor. Um, Blazor train, if you will. Even like even crazier, like the the number of people building WinForms apps with .NET five is huge. So that's a very active group as well. Um, one of the things we actually plan to do with Blazor desktop support is, in addition to supporting Maui, the same infrastructure that we use to run your components and talk to a web view. We plan to also make that uh, infrastructure available to uh, WinForms and WPF apps as well. So if you want to embed a web view control and render some uh, Blazor components in those applications, we want to enable that too. That's very cool. Nice. Very, very cool. Yeah, and it, well, and the folks I talk to, I mean, they're just so wildly productive in WinForms, right? Like they've they got Windows desktops internally. Like that's what their customer cares about. That's what their employer cares about. And uh, it's good, but they're they're the battle has always been now the high DPI screen. Like, is it usable? Yeah, yeah. We should talk to them. I I, I actually, honestly don't know the update uh, on what they're planning to do around high DPI. I had yeah. I, I know they've talked about it for a while. Um, I know mostly what they're focused on right now is the WinForms designer and, and making that um, fully featured and functional with uh, the .NET Core version of WinForms. And I'm sure high DPI is something that I'll drag yeah. Oli on the show sometime in the near future. Yeah, it's got to be through the gambit. You'd be the right person. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, well, it's been promised for a while, but it's a hard problem. And I, I remember talking to Scott Hunter about this, and it may not be a DNR, maybe it's something else, where he was saying, like, "Listen, we can't do per pixel perfect renderings from your old wind forms to the high DPI stuff. Like, you just can't. So we're gonna make you." jump through some hoops to validate your form so they're not broken. You can't just count on you switch to this whole new library and everything just works. It's, you've got to do some testing. Yeah. Hey, man, my TWIP count is off here. 
<laughs> Did you say twip? Really? Oh, Remember twips? Man. Twips per pixel? Oh, oh I got chills. <laughs> How many well, twips one, is that? There's one more thing that we're doing in Blazor that one of the big items we're doing, which is support for WebAssembly AOT that I'm super pumped for. Yeah. Uh, we are finally, we've, I've been talking about, I feel like I've been talking about WebAssembly ahead of time compilation for Blazor for like, Forever, like since the beginning of Blazor. Right. <laughs> but uh, we now have fully functioning prototypes of Blazor WebAssembly apps running with the AOT toolchain, and they are fast, and the size is completely reasonable. Uh, we're gonna huh. we are committing to deliver WebAssembly AOT in the .NET. And for those the, who don't know, uh, that's a mode of WebAssembly where everything's binary. Right. Yeah, it's it's because right now, way, way your WebAssembly app runs, your Blazor WebAssembly app is the only WebAssembly there is actually uh, a .NET runtime. Yeah, it's just the the it's really an IL interpreter, mm. and so you download yeah. normal DLLs and you run them using that WebAssembly based runtime in the browser, and it just executes your .NET IL like it would on any other machine. Right. Except that runtime has no JIT, like you have with Core CLR or other right. runtimes where JIT is possible. And that's just a, a kind of a restriction of the WebAssembly environment right. in a browser. Ahead of time compilation is the process where during development, you take all your .NET code and just turn it all into WebAssembly. And the benefit of that is significantly improved performance. Uh, doing IL interpretation is way slower for CPU intensive workloads. Right. Like if you're trying to deserialize sure. huge JSON documents or trying to do ray tracing in the browser or something like that, it's going to be a lot slower. It's fine for a lot of workloads, but it, it, it will drag compared to a JIT based runtime. With WebAssembly AOT, we get a lot of that performance back. Uh, you know, we already we already did a bunch of perf tuning in .NET 5. Things are two to three times faster in .NET 5. I, I expect that we'll have another two to three times uh, perf improvement with just the, the WebAssembly AOT work. Ray tracing in the browser because your head doesn't hurt enough yet. <laughs> nice. Now, this may be a bit esoteric as far as JIT's concerned, but I mean, JIT was really about abstracting the platform from us, right? That we didn't care that we're running 32-bit or 64-bit or different frame, uh, different operating systems, things like that. Is that even relevant in a WASM perspective? Well, you, you could hypothetically imagine that on the fly, there could be a process in the browser that takes the .NET IL and mm -hmm. turns it into WASM on the fly and optimizes it for WASM execution. And that's that's the job of the jitter in, in the CLR runtimes. So you could imagine right. doing that um, the capabilities to like jit those little pieces of WASM and sort of get them wired into the application again just isn't quite there yet with the yeah. existing WebAssembly standards. So it, you could you could think about doing it. It's just not really technically feasible given the way WebAssembly works today. Well, I guess what I'm actually asking is, are we going to need to have multiple compiled versions and detect what should be sent down to a given browser? Uh, no, because WebAssembly already provides that common abstraction. Like right. it's usually go to the native format for the platform, you know, like like yeah. a, a, x86, x64, whatever. WASM is really that native format for it's all. It's already fully abstracted. Right. So the, the point being, there's just no reason for us to JIT in the first place now. We're already sitting on an abstracted platform. Uh, yeah, in some sense, that that's 
that's, uh, I think, a good conclusion. Like you could mm -hmm. say, well, if I already know I'm going to go to WebAssembly, why would I bother waiting to do this right. at runtime? Yeah, Might as well just punishing the user for this. Yeah, that is the that is the ahead of time compilation model. Every once in a while, we see people on Twitter whining that well, Blazor WebAssembly is too slow, and and it's not because it's slow; it's just because the WebAssembly stuff that they're used to is pre-compiled. Yeah, I mean, it's slow if you're comparing it to .NET today like yeah. if you're used to the dotnet performance characteristics and dotnet is fast right like it's blazingly fast uh for like web workloads on the server and desktop workloads when you do compare it to WebAssembly, you notice a, a real performance drag if you're trying to like port code from your desktop app to a blazer app um you'll be like whoa this is running a lot a lot slower and that is a valid criticism i believe um, with AOT, we think we will have that. Address. So did you say AOT was coming in .NET 6? Yes, AOT will be coming in .NET 6, and it's looking really good. We, I, we will definitely see previews of AOT uh, first half of this year. Wow. Um, I, don't, I don't think, I don't know if we're going to be able to land a preview in preview 2. That's still TBD, but if not preview 2, preview 3, I think is a good candidate. Wow. Because you did talk about putting out WASM AOT in .NET 5. We did. Know, we a wanted year ago. To. Yes, and it just didn't fit. Like, we came kind of late to the .NET 5 release with Blazor. Like yeah. we were working on getting just any release of Blazor WebAssembly out uh, in the middle of uh, 2020. So like it was May when we shipped the first release, supported release of Blazor WebAssembly. And then we shifted our attention to .NET 5 and we started asking things like, okay, let's add AOT now. And they just didn't didn't fit in the, the release. Instead, we focused sure. on optimizing the existing WebAssembly runtime and we made some really good progress there. .NET 6 now is when we're planning to land the AOT. So I'm thinking now that the ultimate, the uber scalable laser application prototype uh, come November is a AOT compiled static web app with your Azure functions handling all the server side stuff, which scaled infinitely. Yep. Yep. Use Azure static web app. Deliver it on a CDN and pff, yeah. Magic. Magic. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's scalable to the point where you could do a Facebook or a, you know, a bazillions of users kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. The one, the one trade off that is worth calling out is when you AOT.NET code, it does tend to get bigger. And this has been the case forever. You like NGen or cross-gen.NET assemblies to their native uh, representations, mm -hmm. you know, take their IL and turn it to the native representation, it tends to bloat because the IL representation is actually pretty compact. Um, so we And we've been worried about that for a while. We knew that was the situation. Right now with the existing prototypes, it looks like the, the default Blazor WebAssembly app when it's AOT'd gets about two times bigger. So it's like four megs. Um, hmm. On the transfer side, four megs. You know, Heads are gonna roll, man. Uh, <laughs> have you looked at? <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a background bigger. graphic bigger. Have you than looked that. at Gmail or Facebook lately, and how much room they take? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I think for many workloads, it will be just fine and and widely applicable. But if you're super um, sensitive to you know every 10 kilobytes of download size, this might not be the solution for you. You will, of course, still have the option of running on the ILO interpreter, which will be smaller. But its performance may be, like for lots of Blazor WebAssembly apps today, its performance is perfectly usable. And so you could do that. Uh, and if you need even smaller and faster startup times than that, well, you know, maybe uh, that it's kind of like, that's that's where you start getting to the point of saying, well, maybe I don't want to use .NET, I want to use C++. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying that's, you know, there are people still writing C++ native code for a reason. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. They they believe that the performance is essential for their for whatever yeah. reason. And there are valid scenarios where that's the case, and that's sure. totally fine. Without a doubt. And you know that's that's the balancing act you have to you have to play. I, and it occurs to me now that you guys have gone to this fixed, we ship every November schedule. That you know the, the Iron Triangle applies. That means you slip features to not slip the date. Yep. <laughs> that's just reality, right? It's like, hey, you want to count on something every November? You don't get to count on the exact feature list. We figure out what can make it. We hopefully give you enough head, you know, notice. You guys talked about not making AOT for .NET 5 in like June of last year. That's well in advance. Like nobody's surprised in November. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and that was fairly quickly after we were really switching our attention to .NET 5. Right. Uh, we were disappointed and we understand. Like, no, no, I was disappointed. I wanted AOT to land as soon as possible. Um, but the good news is it is absolutely committed for .NET 6. Yeah. And now, in some ways, it feels like .NET 5 is a new .NET 1, too. Like, because it is this whole unification strategy side of things. Oh, yeah. And .NET 6 will take that to the next, the next level. <laughs> level, <laughs> level, level, uh, level. All level. the, I mean, you may have seen all the blog posts about really trying to unify Xamarin and what's now going to become Maui with the rest of the .NET platform, like bringing mm-hmm. them into the SDK, having the core libraries be exactly the same implementation, unifying a lot of the underlying infrastructure of the runtimes. All of that is 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 also committed for .NET 6. So a lot of the one .NET vision that we talked about and hoped to deliver for .NET 5, but then pandemic um, that is all coming in the .NET 6 timeframe. So you will target .NET 6 with your Maui applications. Um, the, they'll, they'll have, uh, we have this new workload notion for the SDK that we're working on. So you have a reasonable way to acquire mobile workloads for .NET CLI-based development. All that's coming in .NET 6 as well. And, it, and the point that, I mean, Blazor is now becoming a core product of .NET is an extraordinary achievement. It wasn't that long ago that you were an experimental project on GitHub. I know, I keep pinching myself. <laughs> we, we are, I, I want to emphasize that we are part of .NET. The Blazor yes. component model is part of the ASP.NET Core shared framework. Like yeah. it is baked in there. So it, it, it's 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 part of the .NET platform. It is not a separate thing. Yeah. I know we often talk about ASP.NET Core and Blazor sometimes like as separate concepts, but we think of Blazor internally as part of the .NET web story, as part of ASP.NET Core, because the component model lives in the ASP.NET yeah. yeah. Core. It wasn't always like that, though, right? Once upon no. a time, Steve Sanderson was on a stage making David Fowler's head hurt. <laughs> right? just, it was just not yeah. that long ago. It just took a few years. Like, it's kind of astonishing how far it's come. And it's, uh, also, I, I got a great story. You know, I went to uh, some of the people that have Angular customers that I work with, and said, hey, man, I'm totally, and this was a couple of years ago, you know, when Blazor was first coming out. Uh, uh, hey, man, I'm, I'm your guy for Blazor, you know, let me know. And uh, they said, yeah, our customers are like horrified. It's like the Angular customers are like, no way. And now I go back to that same guy. He's like, hey, you know, I think I have a project that uh, we might be able to, it's this team that, you know, tried to learn Angular or maybe it was, view or something like that you know they're a .NET team and it's like they still don't like it all that much maybe blazer be good for them okay oh, yeah. all right <laughs> yeah all right love it 
Yeah, I, we had a customer, um, uh, thepostage.com that we featured actually at the last.net conf uh, in November. Mm-hmm. They, um, they build a, a service for like uh, end of life planning, like helping uh, manage all your accounts and passwords and documents for when you pass eventually pass away and you need your, mm-hmm. you know, the people that survive you to be able to, to deal with those concerns. They built their entire solution. Their web a- application is all built with Blazor. Their wow. mobile solutions, all Xamarin. And what they loved is how they were able to use the same devs for the front end and the back end. And they just rave about how, how fewer people they needed and how much more code they were able to write because they're able to reuse their .NET skills, their .NET expertise across the stack. Yeah. yeah. Be able to carry that stuff forward. I'm just finishing up a project with Joel Hewlin right now, the a Blazor project that we came in on time. And in remarkably under the number of hours that we originally estimated, but uh, it, it's a really good combination because he he's all things Azure, you know, he knows all that stuff, and uh, and I'm all things Blazor. So between the two of us, we just totally knocked this project out of the park. It was a pleasure to do. Yeah, good. Oh, I, good I, I remember the first time I sat down with Blazor. Um, I mean, I knew some some JavaScript. I wasn't fluent in javascript and i remember writing my first blazer app with steve's uh, initial like early prototype and i was like oh my goodness i can now do front-end web development i just felt so enabled yeah, right? and it was, it was great. Uh, it's a lot of fun to work with uh, it's been a very satisfying project amazing well your skill your skill suddenly makes sense in that new context yeah yeah exactly all right. Well, uh, Dan, you and I have a blazer train to record here coming up pretty soon. But by now, by now, <laughs> this is March 11th when this is coming out. So it'll already be up there. But if you haven't seen Blazer Train, go to blazertrain.com. It's all free. It's all good. And Dan makes a, uh, an appearance on three shows now. There you go. He gets around. Gets around. Getting around. All right, Dan. Thanks a lot. This is great. Keep us uh, apprised of what's happening and we'll come back and talk to you again soon. Will do. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.